and welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. My name is Peter Bond, and with me, as always, is my friend and closest confidant, India Jones. Hello! And uh, Joshua Dean, mean ice cream fiend baker is with me. I don't even really like ice cream, so it's pretty fucked up you'd say that. And uh, that's right, he managed to sneak his way onto the show to try and ask Steve some questions himself. It's our producer, AJ Flurry. Hey, I am here. How are the levels looking? How are the bars? They're looking they, great. Are we, is this the joke that we're going to do every time? Well, uh, it's the end of uh, our the world of as we know it. Come on. We're on pandemic watch. <laughs> I'm sorry. Tasteless. We finished up our read-through of Memories of Ice, so that means uh, we sat down with Steven Erickson again to talk to him about uh, looking back upon that book, what he's been doing in the pandemic, and... Uh, His thoughts on well, camping. Yeah. A little bit of House of Chains. We just wrapped it up. It was a treat. It's been, um, it was a great time. I personally asked some great questions. Yeah, AJ bullied his way onto the show. <laughs> <All> so. Right. <laughs> He said um, if he couldn't be, he said if we didn't let him on, he would stop cutting out every time India loudly snorts during the recordings, <laughs> which I mean, it would be unbearable. <laughs> Jeez Louise. <laughs> I don't know how you turned to burn against me against India. Okay. Yeah, damn. Listen, let's let's get let's get down to brass tacks. Yeah. Um, here's our conversation with Steve about memories of ice. Hmm. Welcome back to the show. I'm uh, he's he's on for our third time now. Uh, it's uh, you know I don't I, I, he needs no introduction. He made the book. <laughs> Steven Erickson's with us again today. Hello. Woo. And uh, Steve, how are you faring during this global pandemic? <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, I, I I think artists tend to be pretty weird anyway, so we tend to um, not mind isolation that much. The only difference is normally I write in cafes, and of course I can't do that now. So I'm writing at home, which is uh, mm. different. Different. Are you passing the time with much writing? Writing and painting. Yeah, painting mm. oils. Mm. Yeah, uh, the painting... mess of my the mess of my desk. You see? Oh, that <laughs> oh, is wow. so many oils. That's a lot of paint. <laughs> That's a lot of paint. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have a quick question about your current writing, uh, if you don't sure. mind. Um, how bold does one have to be to write with a fountain pen and i mean i'm just glancing at your writing you don't make many mistakes it feels like i'm on your like i've been uh, looking at your facebook there's hardly anything crossed out yeah occasionally um i i think the sentence through before i write it out so quite often the typos are typos uh the mistakes <laughs> are um uh my hands moving too fast or whatever mm. so or or i write I write a word i look at it and realize nobody else can read that so i cross it out <laughs> Oh, okay. Which is pretty common. Do you often do writing in longhand, too? Uh, I take notes. I take notes in longhand, yeah. Interesting. So. Well, um, obviously, we just wrapped up our reading of Memories of Ice, and I, I guess I'm just curious, looking back on that book, um, what impression do you think it's left, and uh, how do you think about that book in, in context of the whole series? Well, I mean, listening to your podcast, um, I think you've been enjoying it, uh, all of you. I mm. have. Which is a nice change. Um, <laughs> and uh, Indios, I'm very pleased that you had so much sympathy for the Mai. Oh, she's Because my most people have no sympathy at all for her. Really? Oh, yeah. I can't yeah, imagine. That's pretty that. harsh. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. I was. I know. I was. Well,. I have a few questions because sure. I was so obsessed um, with that character. Like it, it, it was every time we were on it, I was like, I need to stop taking 15 minutes of the pod to talk yeah. about the mob. <laughs> um, yeah. But so I guess my biggest thing is how did you write from a mother's perspective in such a awful predicament? And um, um, was there like an inspiration for that character? Sure. Yeah. Uh, basically with fantasy, you can take a metaphor and make it real. So what I did was I took postpartum depression and made it much more sort of visceral in the sense that uh, Silver Fox is not, it's not just this, the, the belief in, in a mother suffering from postpartum depression that the child is somehow vampiric. Um, I actually made the child vampiric to take, you know, to basically push the imagery, push the analogy further. And 
uh, I know my wife went through maybe three, four months of postpartum depression. So I was quite familiar with it. Um, and that certainly um, gave me the, gave me the idea of how I was going to deal with uh, Silver Fox because I knew I had to ramp up her aging. Um, I figured, mm-hmm. well, where's that going to come from? And so then it just fell into place that if it came from the mother, then I am writing about postpartum depression. Mm. Wow. So, yeah. How deep into the process did you did you decide that uh, you would never reveal the Mibe's actual name? <laughs> um, I just gave her the title, and you know, people complained enough, even by that point, the third book, that I had too many names for too many char- you know, for single <laughs> characters. So mm-hmm. I just thought to keep it simple. That's really good. Peter, did you have a question about the Mibe? Or can I go and I have another question about the Mibe? Sure, sure. <laughs> Take it away, Ann. Thank you, thank you. Um, okay, so this is a hot take, I think, and I think that the boys will disagree. Um, so you know how I think, I, I guess, the, the less likable characters of this book got, I would say, happier, fulfilling, and endings with just like you know they were all redeemed and it was just beautiful Mm -hmm. and i was like i'm just gonna go live my life now but like the mime she never had a reconciliation with her daughter not with her daughter but certainly with uh her war against the world um she was brought into a dreamscape (laughs) that is basically a paradise for her um but the question with the, the daughter is there is too much within silver fox for that that the mother cannot even identify with. I mean, there's personalities mm. there that she did not contribute to. Um, so that estrangement, I think, is is probably uh, unsolvable. Um, so I was more interested in, well, how can I reward the mind for, or reward her in a way that is the most personal, uh, rather than as a mother, but as a woman. And so that's why she ends up in, well, where she ends up. Hmm. I don't know if I'm crushed or if I'm enlightened. <laughs> that is um, a very satisfying answer, I will say. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, kind of hopping on the beginning of India's last question about the redeeming, like, an aster and the seer, mm. um, and then giving these, like, horrible endings to, like, Whiskey Jack, <laughs> and, like, Trots, who, like, gets cut into, like, a bunch of little pieces, um, pretty much. Like, what was your... What was the decision behind that? Well, I just like I why, know, I, I guess. I, I don't know why you, you, you would think Anaster is, is fully redeemed. Um, he's sent off, basically, out of his body. Mm-hmm. And his body is then uh, reoccupied um, yeah. by, basically, by talk. And so that led to the whole scene right towards, right at the end, I guess in the epilogue, where talk as Anaster comes by and speaks to Tool, but Tool does not recognize him. Mm-hmm. and um yeah so that you know the poignancy of that scene again is wouldn't have been possible without without talk sort of being resurrected in some fashion mm-hmm. i don't know if that answered your question um no i mean i think it does well you said something that piqued my curiosity you, you spoke about rewarding the mind and is that something you would think about when you're kind of thinking about where a character might end up in your story in terms of rewarding them for something they've done yeah Absolutely. Um, the universe is cruel enough. Uh, so, you know, in, in, in a fictional universe, one can actually make those those gestures uh, of humanity for your characters on behalf of your characters um, and find them a, a good place to be in. And, I mean, that doesn't often exist in our world. So that's one of the, I think, the, the one of the qualities of fiction in that it can uh, reach to a reader and leave them with a sense at least of some kind of satisfaction. Uh, so the notion of redemption is pretty big in, in Memories of Ice. Um, it's pretty central. And mm-hmm. I, I remember I, when I was writing it and as it Covian took more form, uh, that notion of redemption became overriding uh, almost every other theme in the novel. And so it, it, it all be as, it's all personified in the Covian and his, his final gestures. But the whole novel really touches on that. And that's why, you know, the Mibe is dealt with in the fashion she is. That's mm-hmm. why talk is dealt with that way. Of course, you know, you can't do the, do that to all of them because then you've kind of sent them all off into the into the sunset. And <laughs> why, you know, why ever return to them? Mm-hmm. Um, so there had to be some unresolved aspects um, and some losses that simply cannot be reconciled. So you've got Corlat and you've got characters like that. There needs mm-hmm. to be a balance, I think. 
Can I just go back really quick to yeah. the, um, the, the, the dream world mm-hmm. situation? Okay. Is there a way that this can be explained if, it, if there's no like secret involved? Like, is it a world in a world? Is it even real? Is it not real? Are they alive? Are they not? Um, okay. Bear in mind that I wrote this about 45 years ago. So, um, <laughs> okay. and I've not reread it. So I'm trying to recall. I don't think it, I would think thematically it does not matter whether it's a dream world, uh, whether it, it's a, a fantasy uh, creation within the Mibe's mind. Um, you know, if she in a straitjacket in a wheelchair being wheeled off, uh, if she's smiling, that's more of that of what counts than, than any physical reality. Um, but I think I set it up for it to be um, a kind of pocket warren. Uh, so mm-hmm. another world, which in that sense, within the, the, the mechanics of the Melisman universe, it is as real as any other place. And also bear in mind that it becomes the repository for the thawed, um, just to play on the metaphor, uh, metaphor of the me- memories of ice, the thawed memories of the Talang. Hmm. So, yeah. um, and those memories are thus given life and they remain alive. So I guess in the, in the Malazan universe, it's real. Maybe that's the best answer. No, that was great. Every, okay. It just makes more sense when it's explained. <laughs> I'm still working on it. <laughs> okay. um, I, I guess uh, I just jump off that. Did you bring any of your experiences with fatherhood to writing about the Mibe? Or um, I'd just be curious about that. Um, only in the sense of uh, those male characters who interacted with the Mibe either understanding or not understanding, um, either um, being judgmental um, or compassionate towards that character. So, you know, in terms of the compassion, I think um, surprisingly Krupp is, is certainly one of them who gets it. But Krupp is kind of the authorial stand-in anyways. So, and then there's Cole and Marilio, um, and they, they definitely sort of personified um, the gestures, if you will, or, or, or the... The rituals necessary um, to uh, answer what the mind was suffering, uh, but then there's others that have no sympathy for it at all. And, but curiously, mm-hmm. I found a lot of readers just, you know, I, I'm told often they they love Memories of Ice, but they skip the mind sections. That's really bonkers. That's yeah. wild. That's painful. Wow. That is. But I no, I mean, even... Deadhouse Gates. I get readers telling me they skip the Felicin sections. 100 percent get you it know. yeah <laughs> those are like my favorite sections I know. yeah well me too my favorite to write for sure so yeah i don't know do you think that it's your favorite to write because it's a different it's a different pace or why, oh, yeah. why is it your favorite yeah, to it's write? a different pace um it becomes very visceral it's very heartfelt i mean you, you literally or i do as a writer i, I need to move in and live in the skin of that character. I need to walk in their shoes. Um, I need to see the world from their point of view. And then once I've sort of inhabited that, that's when I, I, I sort of, at least for myself, um, I cut the restraints on the emotional context. Um, so I, I make myself feel what that person would feel. Um, I've always sort of believed that if I'm going to trigger an emotional reaction in a reader, I have to trigger it in myself first. So, um, it becomes, it's actually quite um, traumatic as an experience. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, I think for me, it's the most rewarding because it sort of connects me with that sense of humanity, which is central to the whole series, uh, despite the violence. Um, mm. It's all about humanity. Yeah. So, um, can I, I'm going to change pace real quick if you're okay with that. Sure. Um, so, in the last chapter, mm-hmm. you kill everyone. <laughs> Um, and something that I was one something that I thought is that I felt like a lot of the tactical mistakes that mm-hmm. were made could have been solved if the Malazans didn't have to be the smartest people in the room. It, it really seems like for the last third of the book, mm-hmm. they keep unveiling unnecessary layer after unnecessary layer, and they could have just been they could have just all gotten there at the same time. And they would have had the forces to to win. It feels like, but they just sure. had to. Uh, so, what what is it? 
why is that? Why is it the case that the Malazans always have to be two steps ahead of everybody else? Um, I don't know how much uh, historical texts you read about um, campaigns and battles. Um, one of the things that seems to characterize a lot of them is the extent to which success or failure turns on an error in judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, and as much as you know, I've sort of laid out the Malazan Empire as being, you know, incredibly efficacious uh, in 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 the military side sense. Um, mistakes are always made, mm-hmm. um, and so this is basically a case of uh, too many cooks in the kitchen and um, mm. and errors and uh, distrust uh, plays in there, which then has a kind of a, a domino effect on when things start going bad. Uh, I mean, ultimately, they they thought they trusted each other, but then they didn't. So, mm-hmm. gotcha. Yeah, that that's going to happen, right? I mean, it's it's it strikes me as more realistic than everything being perfectly in sync and it becomes an almost an effortless task uh, to defeat the Panion Dolmen. Mm, okay. So it had to be messy. Yeah. I think sometimes yes. there can be an expectation that people would be making perfect and logical rational sure. decisions all the time, Yeah. which is just not really something us humans yeah. be doing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no. And, and that should, that should apply even to, you know, um, ascendant or, or near godlike figures like, you know, Rake and, and, Lady Envy and all the rest. Um, they make assumptions. They make mistakes. Gotcha. I also loved Lady Envy. Yeah. <laughs> so much. Well, Such a fiery course, woman. I know. I know. And of course, um, the mistake she, the assumption she makes simply is one of, you know, they don't communicate. She doesn't communicate clearly, or rather, she doesn't read um, the bridge burner's sarcasm. Oh, and, that, and that's gone read India. anything, in my opinion. Yeah. She just kind yeah. of, she marches to her own drum. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. so funny. There's one part um, in the last, I don't know when, it was at the end, um, when, which one of them says that, like, oh, we're all going to die, essentially, but uh, she picked... Is it Picker? Picker. Yeah. yeah. Will this take long? Probably, and she and she says, nope, not much, or something like that. Yeah. 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 And then she wrote it, she was yeah. like, well, had you just said you needed help, this would have went a lot yeah. better. And yeah. I just a thought better, it was yeah. so funny. Yeah. Like, well, oh. yeah. Lady Envy... I mean, she sees the world in, in a very, uh, takes things very literally. And so she has that objective point of view. And, and the Malaysian soldiers are the very opposite. Everything's understatement. Um, and it requires nuance to actually understand their, their language. And mm-hmm. she's just alien to it. So, yeah, I mean, there's brutal consequences to that. But mm-hmm. that's part of the story. And so. But honestly, I read it in the same context as she took it. I did oh, not yeah? think that she meant that they were going to die. Okay. <laughs> and I think, Peter, cool. you said that too. I think I was the only one that immediately was like, oh, that's good sarcasm. Mm. But oh. yeah. Okay, maybe it was just me. <laughs> it was the blind optimist in me is all. <laughs> <laughs> Lady Envy is like... There's okay. There's a few like very funny characters in this book. Uh, Lady Envy being one of them. Krupp obviously being another one. And like the funny moments in this book aren't just like chuckles in in between like you know really horrific things. They're like full belly laughs. Um, and oh, I just I I just had one and I completely lost it. Would it but be just, the like, bull, so, Would it be the Bull Brothers? Oh, the it Bull Brothers. It would be the Bull Brothers. Yes. Like some of these moments are just they're 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 so funny. Uh, and was that like a conscious decision to make these moments like really light and yeah. easier to read than like the insanely dark parts? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, I knew I knew things were going to get pretty grim by the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and just as with the whole series, um, even before I started Memories of Ice, I had the scene in my head of Corlat walking under Moonspawn as it, as it wept. And so I knew I was heading to some pretty heavy stuff. Mm. And... I think that does need a balance of some form. You need to sort of give the reader some breathing breathing room, uh, mm-hmm. space to relax. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people, yeah, they're you know where they're wherever they're coming from is is so contrary to everyone else. Um, and the Bull Brothers are a great example um, that they just invite um, some comedic elements to it. Yeah. To build on that, I think it's a interesting juxtaposition because I would say. Like, I feel like the humor cuts the humor cuts the writing and it, it's almost like you're not taking it too seriously, which 
is an almost insane sentence to say, <laughs> considering like the scope of the series, what you talk about, and especially with later some of the way the stylistic writing about. I, I don't know. I just have always appreciated the humor as just a way to, I don't know, kind of just like roll up your sleeves and let the hair down and just like, you know, it's all right. You know, we're doing all of this, but we're still having a little bit of fun, you know? Maybe so. Um, I don't know. I mean, we've got scenes where multiple characters appear. And and I guess one of the questions I always have to ask myself when I'm writing those scenes is, you know, what what is each character looking for out of that moment? And say somebody with like uh, one of the bowls. I can't remember which one he was. The one who steals something um, from the, the bridge, something like that. Yeah, he punches that dude straight out. It's, yeah. And he get, just to get a bunch of dung. Yeah, exactly. Ah. So, I mean, that was his entire mindset while he's standing there. So he's indifferent to all the real drama going on. Um, mm. And there have to be people like that because not everybody is going to be fully engaged um, in whatever's going on. And that probably... Uh, extends to the reader as well so um going back to kind of some of the heavier images in this i i do have to ask if at any point in your life you've been very into uh heavy metal music (laughs) (laughs) uh not really um short period i i was a fan of hawkwind i don't know if that that counts as heavy metal or i don't know what that is um no no yeah not really not really. Well, I ask because um, we've had a lot of readers speak about uh, the image of um, Gruntle in a house full of, like, literally exploding with corpses. <laughs> Actually, we I've uh, we have a Discord, and a lot of people are very mad that we didn't explicitly talk about how metal it is. Um, no, and right. it's just, it's such an evocative image. And I, but I also noticed that, like, I, I felt like me as a reader, I was just kind of like, that's sick. And a lot, like, in a good way. And I feel like a lot of people have gotten out of that scene that is sickening. Like, were you intending to kind of spark like a feeling of grotesqueness with that? Or were you going for just like the sheer scale of like battle that was happening in that area? I think sheer scale. Um, Generally, when I hit through those, you know, the battle sequences, um, for the most part, I've emotionally pulled back and I'm just Mm. objectively describing uh, what you see. And then every now and then, uh, if it's set up right, I can then... I guess, uh, unleash the emotional side of things. For example, uh, Gruntel's banner, um, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of small details, um, sort of send cracks through that objectivity. And that's kind of the intention anyways. So yeah, it's, it's more stylistically, I'm just being very objective. And why do you prefer kind of having an objective view to those scenes? Um, well, uh, hopefully it avoids purple prose. Um, you know, if, if the scene is going to be so horrific, um, one, I don't want to glorify that. I don't want to indulge in it stylistically. Mm-hmm. And so you just lay it out there, and it is what it is. What is that word that you said? Where, when, how? Um, pur- purple. Yeah, what I, do, I have no idea what purple prose is. Purple prose, yeah. It's overwrought language, uh, melodramatic oh. language. Mm. Um, yeah, okay. Too many descriptives, that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, I actually enjoyed a lot of the battle scenes a lot wow. more this time around. I can't believe I'm hearing this. I know. <laughs> In the last one, I really, I struggled. It's mm-hmm. no lie. They would say things and I'd be like, oh, I didn't even read that because I kind of skimmed a little bit over it. Sure. But <laughs> now, now I'm, I'm pretty in it. I'm like really appreciating <laughs> it a lot more, I think. I think because I understand who the characters are now. So yeah, I'm more invested in their so. story. It does help, does um, help. Where it just kind of went over my head with uh, Diker or Duiker, and I just couldn't get into it for some reason. But this time around, I was like very much into it. Well, and, yeah, and of oh, course, uh, Duiker um, is an unusual point of view for those those battle sequences because he's an historian, so he keeps imp- trying to impose objectivity on it, and uh, you know continually fails at it. So yeah, I was that just going to say, could be that, but wasn't it yeah, all? that one bit of remove that is. Um, that makes it more uh, or less likely that the reader fully engages. And I think in many respects with Dead House, Dead House Gates, the reader only engages post-battle uh, at the fall. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. You know what I mean? I, I mean, yeah. yeah. Think, think of, think of the, the two horses being used um, in Dead House Gates for that one battle, and their lives are used up, basically. Mm-hmm. So the, emotions, the emotion only hits when that line is laid out there. That, you know, I used up the lives of, of these two horses. 
The rest is, is just sort of straightforward, objective description of what's happening. But here, if, you, if, you're, if you're committed to the characters, then suddenly the jeopardy they find themselves in, hopefully, as a reader, uh, you're much closer to it. So you engage uh, on a more direct level. That's the plan, anyways. Yeah. Additionally, there are many times, I think, during the pod that I get very upset at an animal death more so than <laughs> I'm sorry else. about that. No, I, I, and I do too. I do too. Um, I mean, in some respects, that's why I resurrected the two dogs uh, oh. at the end of uh, Dead House Gates, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was the best. That was the best. <laughs> I, to jump back in on something you said about... Um, kind of writing from the battle from an almost objective point of view, um, you, you said something about not wanting to glorify it or something. Mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. forget exactly how you said it. And it makes me think of uh, Truffaut said something about how you, you, you can't make an anti-war film because inherently by presenting conflict like that on screen, there's a certain type of glory and ennobling it. I don't agree at all. Yeah. Interesting. Please. I, I don't think you can make a war film. I think every war film is an anti-war film. Mm. Like inherently by presenting it, yeah. you're, you're showing it the, the horrors of it. Not, uh, not always just the horrors, but sometimes the absurdity of it. If you've seen, and I've studied war films. Um, was when I was taking my film, film um, minor, uh, my second degree, I, 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 in fact, I probably own virtually every war film ever made. Um, think of The Longest Day. <laughs> There's one scene in there where, oh, there's an actor, I can't remember which, which one he is, but he's leaning against a, a stone wall. He's a paratrooper. And opposite him is a dead uh, German officer. And the whole scene is all counted or centered around the fact that the officer put his boots on the wrong feet and, the, the, and then was killed. Um, and I think the paratrooper is also dying. Uh, they basically killed each other, but the paratrooper is slower to die when this mm. other soldier stumbles upon them. And so, it, it, I mean, it's a very poignant scene. Um, and it, yes, it's comedic in some respects, but uh, it's also the absurdity of war. Uh, it's just laid out in that one scene. And I can think of dozens of examples. Uh, and yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't agree with Truffaut. I mean, Truffaut was, you know, deeply in love with celluloid. So everything I think, you know, uh, he framed for the camera, he fell in love with. So he would have had that kind of romantic approach towards filmmaking uh, just thinking it was films you know 400 blows things like that but i'd be very surprised if there was any filmmaker doing a war film who was actually um attempting to glorify war uh, most of the war films are actually made by veterans anyways you think the big big red one ones like that and they have no no romantic bone left in their bodies regarding war so. mm. talking about the the absurdities of of war made me think of the the part the, the the scene where Brickalian runs to the the main square just to be slaughtered, mm-hmm. and he knows that it's going to happen, and just tells uh, or doesn't tell Ekovin because Ekovin's knocked out. But you know he's like, okay, well I'm just going to go do this because it has to happen. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just like, oh, it's pissed. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, that's that was just a <laughs> yeah. The um, the gray swords are uh, a very unusual um, group. Uh, I uh, go ahead. I've, I, I enjoyed the gray swords, I would say, tremendously until that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, because I understand that their whole deal is to just is be dedicated to their god, but it, in that moment, it feels like Brucalian has lost his own free will. You know, he must do this because his god commands it, even though he knows that it, in some ways, would, could it leads to more atrocity in this city. And it just, I, I just don't understand why mm-hmm. they, I don't know. I really like that and the new gray or the new gray swords, they're very fast and loose with what their oh, god wants. Oh, I love it. Yeah. At any moment, I could see them being like, "Our god loves this now." They'd be like, "Yeah, they do. Let's go." <laughs> very fun. Well, well, well consider um, the Knights Templar uh, fleeing. Um, I guess it's is it Antioch, uh, the last or maybe Acre. Anyways, um, the last stronghold that they had in the Middle East, in order to get the wealth onto the ships a certain number of them had to sacrifice themselves and fight rear guard action. Um, and they would have done so with joy because, you know, <laughs> their fanaticism um, and their belief in, in uh, what they were doing uh, in service to God would have uh, overridden anything else. 
Mm. And so in many respects, Bukali and well, the gray swords are quite similar to the Templars in that respect. Um, very rigid, very structured um, military society. Speaking of the gray swords, I'd be curious, and we don't need to talk about it necessarily, but when you introduce the gray swords and the Bargast in Memories of Ice, obviously they come up again later in the series. Mm-hmm. And when you were introducing them here, did you know that you were going to kind of take them in further on and kind of build them out in a kind of different direction later on in the series? Or was that something you came up with later on? Uh, I didn't do too much with um, this particular group of gray swords. I, I, I don't recall doing, doing, you know, paying a lot of attention later on. The Bargast, yeah, I knew something was, uh, I knew what was coming uh, for them. And so I had to sort of set that up all the way up to, I guess, Dead Hell, or Dust of Dreams, maybe in the Cripple God. Yeah. yeah. I, I would like to say the Barcast are, the, are my new example when someone tries to ask me why uh, these novels are... Because I've been trying to pitch to more people, but I always have the caveat of, like, it's a lot to remember. And they go, well, what does that mean? And I have started to be like, well, the Barcast, they and the Moranth, and that is as far as I've gotten. Uh, with <laughs> anyone who will listen... <laughs> Yeah. Can I, can I can I change pace real quick? Sure. I feel like as a reader, I tr- I have to have trust that my the author of the, a novel is not lying to me. Right? Right. And it is truly it, it was very world-shattering to me in the th- throwaway scene it felt like between Dujack and Whiskey Jack when when they when they're talking about Pale and they talk about how the grand conspiracy that since book one we've kind of assumed has happened really just it was just a series of like unforeseeable bad luck events and I don't, it just really changed how i like i i really on book three i want to go back and read the first two already like with this new point of view when like when did you decide that rather than lying to your audience the audience and the characters would have to work off false information for two, three books, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, well, yeah, it just, it, it really messed me up. Well, it, it's part and parcel with holding tight to points of view mm-hmm. rather than any authorial intrusion um, or, or overarching sort of vision. So, and it, it becomes sort of a, begins as a discipline in terms of holding to a point of view, but then it becomes second nature. And so, and then you realize that by holding to strict points of view, you can withhold information, not just uh, for the characters, but for the reader as well. So that sets things up. You, you've said that you, you, you tend to live in the skin of the characters as you write them. Do you, do you have to like keep track of things that characters don't know and therefore yep. have to work? Oh, that's, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining you at a cafe with like a flow chart. No, <laughs> it's more a case of um, not just what could they know. Um, it's also a case of uh, what that character will believe or chooses to believe. You know, mm. every, every individual uh, operates on, with some level of cognitive dissonance. And so um, once you've got their agendas in mind, once you've got their motivations in mind, then it becomes easy to eliminate those aspects of even awareness or knowledge that don't fit the the puzzle that the character has built uh, of the world. And so those things are quite easily dismissed by those characters. So even Mm. if they were to be told something that becomes crucial later, that thing does not fit with their ideas of, of, you know, how this world works. Uh, They will, they will not remember it. They'll just dismiss it. So I guess it's more a case of you always choose the details you're going to put in to any scene. Um, And if you're holding to one character's point of view, you know, if I, I don't think I did. If I'd written that scene with the manure and uh, which bowl is it? I don't know. I can't remember. It's one of the brothers. Um, from his point of view, you wouldn't have heard any other conversation, right? None of it would have mattered. Everything would have been a description of that bag of dung, mm. you know, um, and timing. So, and that, and that could be a lot of fun if, you, if one chooses to do that. You, you, you drop everything into the background and... Um, it's up to the reader to say, wait a minute, this is not really background. This is something very important. But the stupid character whose point of view I'm stuck with is, you know, being a complete idiot and not <laughs> catching it. And so it's that sort of that second second effort that the reader has to make to almost push the point of view character aside to get to the truth. I very much felt that way when after they capture an aster, we don't there is no scene of Itkovian like 
mm-hmm. taking his struggles or whatever. It just like is addressed while he's on a, a horse and then we just move past it. And I like had to read that line again because I was like, wait a minute. Did we just leave out this like huge scene that we had like build up half this book of like how awful this character is and needs to be redeemed? And he's just like, oh, no, yeah, he's fine now. We're good. And I was just like, wait, <laughs> that's just I, I, I feel like I so easily could have read over that part, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know. I didn't. I like. How do you? How can you put that much trust in your readers to like not miss things like that? Oh um, my god! You, you trust us way too much. You have to. You have to. Um, yeah. Because otherwise, you're writing down to the reader, and and that that becomes very noticeable very quickly. Hmm. Um, also, I always had in mind that this stuff should be able to sustain multiple rereads um, and yeah. still entertain readers. I've read too many books that. I have no interest in ever going back to. Whereas I, other books, I would love, you know, I love going back to because I'm always discovering something new. And so hmm. if that's kind of my value system uh, as a reader, then that just shows up uh, in what I'm writing as well. So I have hmm. to, I have to assume basically. And yeah. quite often my audience in my own mind was an audience of one and that was Cam. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of the jokes, a lot of the humor, there's a lot of in stuff, in jokes that occur, which are only for Cam and vice versa. Really? Yeah. That's incredible. Well, that reminds me, what have you been reading recently in the pandemic? Uh, actually nothing. <laughs> nothing? Nothing. No, I'm not reading. Isn't that weird? I'm watching a lot of Netflix. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I have to ask, have you watched Letterkenny? Uh, I've heard about Letterkenny, no, but I've not watched it. Okay, I don't have much experience with anyone from Canada. It's you and this show, and they are two very, very different ideas of Canada. And they're very hard to make interact and work. I yeah. also have two ideas. It's you and Degrassi. And- Degrassi. <laughs> and- Degrassi. Wow. Yeah. Oh my. No. Um, want a closer reference? Look, a, look up uh, Bob and Doug McKenzie from Second City. Uh, television network mm. yeah that would be closer to my sensibilities in canada huge mm. <laughs> vibes oh did you you you've been mm. on netflix have you caught tiger king that swept the when no, it swept the nation yeah, i know I, I i'm not interested in watching cruel so di- animals yeah disinterested mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> i know i just watched a belgian one called into the night just finished the it's one season. It's actually quite good. It's quite interesting. That's the, the, the scary one? Kind of scary. They, they have to stay in the air in a plane uh, to no, avoid uh, the sun because there's been a major change in, uh, in the gamma uh, radiation emissions of the sun. So it's become lethal, which Golly. means they just have they... to keep fueling up their, their plane and staying ahead uh, and I staying think... in the night. Oh it's very, God. very interesting. Great wow. premise. Yeah. I started Wild Wild Country. I don't know that oh. one. Mm. Oh, that's a good one. Wild is Wild Country is a good one. Yes. It's a cult in, is it Oregon? Yes. Yes, Oregon. And it just kind of just like came out of nowhere and took over this small Oregon town. It's a very, it's a very, very good show. It's, it's, it's yeah. more than just a cult, though. I mean, they, yeah, they, it's they, a they, way yeah. of life. They made a whole community. They made an airport and a bank mm-hmm. and and built it. It was, it, it's the most insane. I just started it, so I'm very fascinated. I don't know the bad part <laughs> yet. Obviously, there was a downside. Yeah. Um, is it, it's a, so it's nonfiction. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Nonfiction. No. Yeah. Yes. Nonfiction. Non- it did happen. What's a, yes, wow. it did. <laughs> you know, in the in the sixties and seventies, communes, although maybe morally complicated, <laughs> at least seemed like people were having fun. You know? <laughs> I feel like cults and like nowadays, it's just all criminal. It's all manip- It's it's That's all. True. You know, there's at least no like pretense that we're going to build a utopia you know I don't yeah. know. that's true yeah <laughs> we should yeah. focus on yeah i don't know <laughs> Hello, everybody. Producer AJ here, interrupting what was supposed to be a conversation about books. Uh, let me just start off by saying thank you so much to everyone who gave us feedback about the D&D episode. We are so, so glad that you liked it. Uh, we had a great time making it. And who knows, maybe there will be some more role playing in the future. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to the man himself, Steven Erickson, for coming on the show for a third time. It was great talking to him, and I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Before we get back to it, I just wanted to remind you, you can always tweet us your thoughts and feelings at 10VeryBigBooks, or you can email us 10 
librarybigbooks at gmail.com, or you can join our Discord by heading over to bit.ly slash VBB Discord. That's capital V, capital B, capital B, capital D, Discord. The link will also be in the show notes. And as always, thank you so very much to Dan Gesrick for making our spectacular logo. You can follow him on Twitter at Dan Gesrick, but leave him alone. He's very busy working on some great new art for the show. And of course, the wonderful music in today's episode is Floating Man by the one and only Amaranthin from their album The New Romantic, which you can find along with Simulant Rain and their other music on bandcamp.com. Links to their pages will be in the show notes and 10 very big books will be back next week on July 3rd with the first episode of season four. Uh, We talk the House of Chains prologue and chapters one and two. In the meantime, let's get back to the show and thank you so much for listening. I'll bring it back. Uh, in related to Balazan and TV, um, okay. if so, if you were able to bring bring the story of the the Malazan Book of the Fallen right. to to a TV series, it, you know, maybe that works, maybe it doesn't. But if you had control over aspects of it, do you think you would structure it in a way that's more accessible to? A viewer who's never seen it or would you try and stay true to how you've presented information in the books well um a television series is uh its own art art media mm-hmm. um and so it would be a different product it wouldn't be just following along you know um strictly to uh, how the books are laid out mm. one thing there's too much in the books um to fit into um, a television series and, you know, one season per novel, but you know, how many people are able to sustain 10 years uh, of mm. a single television show? Um, it's yeah. Netflix certainly probably wouldn't stomach that. Um, mm. they're Sounds very like much an ABC on, thing. Yeah. Yeah. No. So it, it's, one has to recognize that this is a, a kind of a retelling of the story, but, um, from the television, um, based on sort of what, what is required in television, uh, in episodes, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, one of the things Cam and I had already decided uh, when we put our pitch together was we were going to take the character of Tabor and stay with her as a subplot through the first three books mm. um, because she becomes, you know, the spine of the entire series. Um, and the reader who's at book three doesn't know that yet. Uh, it starts to, be- starts to become evident in book four. Mm. Um, so, but for, you know, to do a series and make it... Um, I guess unify it. Uh, I can't wait till book four to to sort of right. um, dump on on the viewer that this is a, this is a central character. So the, her storyline would have to be followed quite closely with a lot of political infighting in, in uh, the, the imperial capital and uh, right. a lot of her decisions. Um, <laughs> so it would be right away. It would be different. Very different. Gotcha. Um, I have a question. So. Whiskey Jack was always you, you always knew he was not going to make it past these books, right? Well, because you wrote him as somebody who seemed. Sorry, I was going to say you wrote him as somebody who seemed. Well, actually, how would I know? I I wouldn't know. But from I thought he seemed like a you know he'd go the ten books kind of guy. Right. <laughs> he didn't. <Yeah. laughs> no, no, I got foreshadowed pretty early uh, at the end of Gardens of the Moon uh, when he breaks his leg. Yeah, Steve lays it on pretty thick. Yeah. Did you guys well, did you guys know that Peter on the first read around? Did you know? Because I was like, oh, I didn't, but you know, now I get to act smug about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> like in one of the episodes, I literally am like, my prediction is that Dujack is going to die and Whiskey Jack is going to be, and I, and I was like, I, I, I was so wrong. I am mm. a fool. <laughs> yeah, that that uh, death, that hit me hard. I thought yeah. he was going to get to retire, but maybe be maimed. You know. Like, he doesn't get off scot-free. I didn't think his, like, shin would, you know, explode from his leg and get stabbed. So, uh, yeah. So when well, you have characters like Whiskey Jack, who, who his backstory with the Bridge Burners is touched on a little bit, but especially mm-hmm. people like Caladan Brood, Animated Rake, Dujek, and they all have these long, huge sagas. When you're introducing those characters, how do you manage to, what do you think about when you're trying to convey that backstory, but also try not to overwhelm the reader with all this exposition or anything? Um, yeah, it's, I mean, one of the, the great ironies is um, it was my first three role-played characters um, for the campaign that Cam ended up running were Anamander Rake, uh, Kaladin Brood, and Triss, who became Queen of Dreams. And they were my first characters. And so by the time, 
you know, you're seeing them show up in, in Memories of Ice or even Gardens of the Moon. There's 10 years of gaming behind them. And so there's an extraordinary amount of information. Um, and then it became a, a question of, well, how much of it is actually relevant uh, to the story I want to tell now? And the answer was not much. <laughs> um, not much is relevant. Only to the extent of Rake acquiring Draconis the sword, uh, or Dragnipper the sword. The fact that Lady Envy was present when that happened, um, and the fact that Draconis is her father. I don't know if those are spoilers for you guys or not, but those that was all gamed. And, and so that was relevant because uh, Rake has the sword. How Brood acquired the hammer, I mean, I don't even think it's mentioned. So it's only what is important, what is relevant to um, the story being told now. And so in that sense, all you have to know uh, when you see Rake and Brood in the same room or the same tent is their easy familiarity with one another. And that sort of conveys uh, that long-standing alliance. I hope it conveys that. Um, so one does not need to provide a whole bunch of expositional backstory for those kind of characters. You have to pick and, you have to pick and choose, right? You have to pick and choose who you're going to provide that backstory for. And you mm. can't do it for all of them. Obviously, some of that backstory is touched on uh, in the Carcanus trilogy. Do you think um, some of the, some of that other stuff about Caldan Brute or just other characters' histories would be something you would write more about, or do you think that's just best left in the past? Most of it's best left in the past, but you're right. The Carcanus trilogy is certainly cent uh, it centers uh, to a large extent on the relationship between uh, Rake and uh, Caldan Brute when they met and certain statements made to each other and vows made to each other very obviously very early on that will only really manifest in what book 8 told the hounds in your series in this series it sounds right yeah yeah so but that stuff wasn't game that was fiction fictively created um, created for the Carcanus um, series uh, most of that trilogy is not gamed did the character of Calor interact with Kaladin Brood. I mean, we might we might find this out later, but like it felt very strange that these two like very powerful long-lived like beings. Like have they interacted in history before we meet them in this book? Um yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Long standing. <laughs> Is that as much as you can say right now? Uh yeah, for now. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, all these characters live long enough in their lives to have crossed paths. That's what I was wondering. Okay. Right, yeah. India, you had a question. Okay. So I was I was on the Facebook and I had just discovered that you had your own page. So mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I got to like this page. So I like the page and I'm on the page and I'm just scrolling. I went down the rabbit hole. I'm going to be honest. And I saw a picture of you and someone else and there was, seemed to be like a tent in the background. Maybe. That's me and Cam. Yeah. I'm, that's, okay. That was my question. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, and that's what was the, going on? That's the dig we actually met on. It was called Mud Portage. It was in Northwest oh, wow. Ontario uh, on the on the shoreline of Clearwater Bay in Lake of the Woods, a petroform site, but also an occupation site. And um, big story behind that tent. So yeah, Cam and I shared that tent. And I guess at that point, I'd, I'd never role played at all. So I knew nothing about that stuff. But we just, you know, we'd hit it off. Our boss... Uh, a great archaeologist and friend named Richard Callahan had bought that tent new for us. And it had been made in Brazil. Wow. And um, when we put it up, we quickly discovered that uh, it basically housed a rainforest. It was just, it leaked like a sieve. Um, oh, and and so uh, we ended up putting tarps. And that's what you're seeing. You're seeing the, the makeshift um, series of tarps covering the tent in order to keep everything dry inside. Oh, wow. and, I thought that um, was for aesthetics. Yeah, and, and uh, we've told the story before, but towards the end of that season, um, Richard, who is a very taciturn, um, stoic kind of man, um, drank way too much whiskey one night. And Cam stayed up with him for part of that, and I, I, I went back to the tent. And then I was about two in the morning, a very drunk Cam is, is at the tent flap saying, I've lost Richard. And, um, <laughs> oh, um, no. and so I get out and it's pitch dark. Um, and uh, we head back to the kitchen tent area, which is on a little peninsula. And we find that, yeah, sure enough, Richard's not there, but he has raided the cool, uh, the uh, Coleman cooler, uh, raided the food box. And, um, so we start heading up this other trail towards where his tent, because uh, his trail, his tent was on a different, different trail. 
And then we discovered these links of sausages sort of lining up, <laughs> making their way to the tent. And they get, Richard got about, uh, he got to the entrance of the tent before he collapsed. Oh, and um, so he, he's got one hand holding this sausage and all these links uh, trailing behind him. And um, so we, we, you know, crouched down to help him get into his tent. And he's close to weeping. And he's saying, I'm sorry about the tent. I'm sorry about the tent. <laughs> and it was just, it was just one of those moments that we had mentioned it. You know, he had mentioned it. Uh, we'd been teasing him about it for the whole summer. Um, and he never said a word. And he oh just, that night, that night, poor Richard, he broke down about the tent. <laughs> His so, true feelings came out. Yeah, this poor guy. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. I had to ask about that picture. Yeah, I was yeah. Like, no, that, that's me and Cam. Yeah, very early. Uh, I can't remember what year that was, but. Do you still get out and camp? If I'm on, if I'm going to do a dig, generally, yeah, I would camp. But the, my understanding is most projects these days, they make use of motels and mm. that kind of thing. Um, so maybe the tenting days are done. But <laughs> I mean, we were in, in a pretty remote place. We had no, no power or anything along those lines. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you just had to tent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had um, a resident uh, bear as well. It was um, it was a cross. It was a Kodiak cross, so quite big. So black bear and Kodiak, and, and it had a, a rust red collar for mm -hmm. um, Kodiak. Is normally it's a, it's kind of a white collar on the bear, but this one was rust rust covered, and it would come down to our camp and simply raid everything. Um, and so we had these Coleman coolers. You know what those look like? Coleman yeah. coolers. Yeah. yeah, the kind yeah. where you, you push the lid down and it simply seals itself. Mm. Yeah. 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 Well, bears can get through those really easily. Mm -hmm. um, impressive. <laughs> I remember, and so by the end of the season, when we were unloading stuff back at the University of Winnipeg, uh, all these students walking by, and we're, I mean, we smell like we've been out in the bush for 10 days, which we had. Um, <laughs> and we're loading all this equipment. And we had all these coolers lined up, and everybody was stopping to stare because the lids were full of teeth holes. Like oh canine gosh. holes from the bears, right? <laughs> oh my having god! We just, no, just chewed their way through. Um, yeah, at one point, I think that bear got four pounds of bacon in its belly. <laughs> oh, it oh, was yeah. loving life. Yeah, Jeez. it was a happy bear. <laughs> so, to me, memories of ice does follow some traditional pacing and narrative structures a little more than I think some of the later books in the series. Oh yeah. Oh, which yeah. definitely gets more experimental with how it's all laid out. So do you think as the series went on, you felt more confident in taking the readers into those more experimental places or how did it kind of build structurally? Those yeah, no, no, you're right. Two things. Um, one, I felt more confident. If they were still with me. They would stay with me. Um, <laughs> and I, I could take more risks uh, structurally. And you're about to discover that if you've started House of Chains. There's a structural alteration yeah. there. Or, or we haven't quite started it, but it's okay. definitely a, it's definitely structured differently, right? Yes. Oh, good. Um, different good I, or different, yeah, different bad? Different like I'm going to get it? Or... Well, um, sometime after Memories of Ice was published, or maybe even Dead Hell's Gates, I was paying more way too much attention to commentary and, and Amazon reviews and stuff. And somebody was complaining that, well, Erickson you know, can't sustain a single character point of view for very long. He's got to jump around. Ooh. And Here. I thought, fuck you guys. I mean, yeah, really. Um, fuck off. So I sat down when, when I sat down to write House of Chains, I thought, okay, part one, book one of the four books will be entirely from one point of view. I'll just stick with Jeez. it. So oh. that's what you're getting. <laughs> oh what? my gosh. That yeah. makes I don't know why that makes me like feel like it's gonna be harder. I feel about that. That is different. Well, it is different, but also um, especially you, India, you're gonna be pretty appalled initially by this character um but you just gotta stick stick with him and okay. the irony is you've already met him you just oh my god is please tell me it's iscarol pust i'll no. die and go to heaven oh <laughs> damn it damn, I was gonna give i'm up so right there. excited <laughs> i'm excited oh, yeah. oh wow so no, yeah that's... back to answering peter's question yeah so yes i was more confident but also i did not want readers to be reading the same novel over and over again in the series so um, I needed to, to mix things up and, and structurally change things. Um, I would say the biggest structural change comes in book eight. So you guys have got to, you know. You've alluded eight. to it, and yeah, I do dream yeah. about it sometimes, and it's not great. 
I think it's a real strength what you're saying about having those different structures. And I think um, it lends itself to something I've always loved about kind of long series like this, where each book is ends up, although they're telling the same story, ends up being a kind of separate thought, and yeah. a separate thing from each other. So then you get to have um, conversations where someone, let's say Reaper's Gale really resonates with them. And I get to, we get to talk about our differences and we get to see kind of why different parts of the story um, connect with different people. That's something I've always loved about. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, did, I did not want to do any cliffhangers, although I knew there'd be a cliffhanger between books nine and 10 because those two books are one giant novel. So I wanted each, I wanted the reader to come away from each book, at least with some sense of completion of the storyline uh, and mm-hmm. resolution, um, you know, promises of redemption, whatever. Um, so that there's nothing sort of left hanging. And so the, the overall arch uh, or arc of the story, uh, the 10 book series, it, it stays in the background basically until books nine and 10. And that allows me to actually structure and plot uh, each novel uh, as a distinct, um, discrete storyline. Now, this, this book, I mean, does a lot of setup, I guess, for the the rest of the series, obviously, with the introduction of the Cripple God and the House of Chains. And, you know, I'm only inferring from the last book being called the Cripple God. Mm. Um, but did you have this like entire arc completed in your head? Like when you were writing this book, like you already I'm knew. nodding. I'm nodding. Yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had I had certain scenes similar to the Corlat mm-hmm. scene at the end of Memories of Ice, but they weren't going to show up until the 10th book. And then mm. it's a very strange kind of you hold it in abeyance. You you have it visually. It's like it's been filmed already. Um, <laughs> and then you've got, you're hoping, a lot of emotional context to it, uh, to those scenes. Uh, but you have to hold off. You can't, like, I, I didn't want to steal or rob from those scenes. I had to wait right. until book 10 before I could actually get to them. And then I realized that, well, if there's going to be an emotional context to them, I have to start working on that now. You know, book one, book two, book right. three. Mm. to basically build it and build it and build it until so that when those scenes happen, it, it hopefully delivered, you know, the amount of emotional punch that I wanted. Um, yeah. And then as I was writing it and I was getting closer and closer to actually writing those scenes, I really started getting scared that I'd had them in my head for so long that maybe technically I would not be able to pull it off, to pull mm. off those scenes. So that was sort of starting to haunt me as I neared the end of the series. Yeah. Um, were, were you... I was going to say, were you worried about not doing the characters justice or were you worried about yeah, just like people weren't going to like it? Yeah, the whole scenes, yeah. uh, not doing them justice. Yeah, yeah. That, that became stronger for the character of Tavor, but um, you're going you're gonna, to like meet Tavor, um, not in book one of, book, of the four books of House of Kings, but book two mm-hmm. and thereafter. Yeah. Um, and, so she, and she is a character that is the most restrained of all my points of view. Or she's not, I never give you your point of view but she's the most constrained and restrained of all characters. Mm. Um, so she's held in check until book 10. And mm. um, that ended up becoming a, something I greatly enjoyed writing um, because everything had to be held in and nothing has to, nothing could be revealed of her, her emotional state, her motivations right. or anything. And that made her a lot more interesting to write as a character. Mm. You said earlier that during Memories of Ice, you were maybe wrapped up in Amazon reviews. And oh, yeah. <laughs> nowadays, what's your relationship to that type of dialogue when you <laughs> release a book? Do you know what I mean? Um, I've not been back to Amazon to look at reviews in about 10 years. Sounds um, healthy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they became quite agenda-driven, as far as I can remember, and I could see that mm. getting worse. I mean, virtually everything nowadays is politicized. Um, and so you can almost predict, you know, whether somebody's going to like a book or not based on the first three or four words in, their, in the sentence, you know, the first <laughs> line of the reviews. And mm-hmm. so you just, I, I, yeah, it, it, um, one cannot sort of uh, convince anybody of, of anything, mm. especially online. So, yeah, I gave up pretty early. Good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that sounds like it's for the better. Uh, yeah, any oh, last question? Know. It seems like... Oh, yeah. oh, I have a... Well, I, I, got... I have a question. Did oh. you guys enjoy Memories of Ice? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, India, India yeah. said she loved the book. I believe. Wow. wow. Uh, I did say that. The last chapter made me cry two times in less than an hour, and I think it is maybe the single greatest chapter of anything I've read in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that chapter um, alone has caused me to try to pitch people on this series. 
Right. So I'm going to try to guess the cry, cry moments. Um, <laughs> let's see. Korolak? Uh, no. No? Um, no. Fate of the Bridge Burners in the Palace? No. No? Talk? No. Oh, oh wow. Uh... Um, <laughs> Itkopian. Yes. Well, exclusively his mo- his monument. His monument. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. I, um, they him and Peter were so moved, and I was like, I uh, wasn't like at, like not upset. I was just like, oh, that that was nice. No, that was I nice. that's good. I ugly cried. <laughs> like uh, I, I just Corlat just got me and talk mm. talk oh, talk and um his 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 brother. Mm. Oh, Tool. Yeah. Tool. That's his name. I always the T names are not. I just can't. Yeah. I don't. I they they all blur for me. I don't know why. The other one was, uh, Quick Ben just saying the names of the of the uh, Malazans. I just mm. uh, tore me up. Yeah. You see, it's funny because when I was writing all that, um, I thought the most the heaviest impact moment was the Talanamas on the field turning to Cobian. Yes. I think I just yeah. couldn't understand. Like I, I couldn't fully grasp how important what was about to happen was. Yeah. 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 And but at the same time, most people don't mention it. And then for me, the other the other big scene is is in the um, in the epilogue when I wrap up. I do so kind of that full circle with mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Deadhouse Gates and Gardens of the Moon, and I bring Duiker in and wrap him yeah. into the story. Of the film. It's kind of a Mobius loop that trilogy. Mm-hmm. I oh that the epilogue is also the home to. The, the first time, maybe second time, that I have fully missed something and India, like, got something immediately, which is, I did not know that was the crippled god. <laughs> Zero was clue. What was that? I, the crippled what god, I just... Ugh. Oh, so there was an old beggar outside. He, I think he was wearing a hood. <laughs> and I was like, and he said something to uh, Perrin, I think. Yeah. And mm. I was like, oh, my God. Because he coughed or something. And I was like, it's the crippled god. He is unchained. And Josh was like, yeah, and that creepy <laughs> beggar outside. <laughs> I just thought he was so weirdo. And I was like, classic Steve, just throwing in some weird beggar right now. Classic Eric, wow. just throwing in a random beggar. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I guess I should, uh, I should have said classic Steve, nothing, everything matters. Nothing is irrelevant. <laughs> that was well, the that, I mean, that's, yeah, that's the plan. Is, is One does not want to be putting in extraneous, uh, not relevant stuff. Mm-hmm. It has to be, it has to serve a purpose. That's why, you know, I mean, I started as a short story writer and I had that drilled into me from day one that everything you put in a short story needs to have more than one function or more than one purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it doesn't get rid of it. And mm-hmm. then when I started writing novels, I just applied that to novels, which was probably a bit unusual because I write them like short stories because that's the only mm-hmm. way I know how to write. So, yeah. Yeah, it needs to have multiple purpose. Mm-hmm. And we talk about this. We talk about that everything has a purpose. And every time we have these conversations, I'm like, I'm going to go read this next book with new eyes. I am going to get it. I'm going to know everything. Cause everything and, and then every time, Peter and Josh are like, oh, yeah, did you catch this? And I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why it's there for rereads, right? Mm. You catch yeah. it the next time around. Yeah. This this was the book that made me go, I'm going to have to reread this whole this this damn series when we're done. I'm not even going to podcast about it. I'm going to have to read it. <laughs> well, good. No, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you all enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And just one, a closing overall question about mm-hmm. this. Oh, well, I don't know if it's closing, but so how long did it take you to write this book? And then I yeah. think you mentioned that you left some, one book and came back later. Did you do, well, do you do that often or not? No, no. Um, you lost it, right? Yeah. I, oh, yeah. right. I lost Deleted. the opening. Um, in the opening 180 pages, they're about oh, um, which is why I then went to Deadhouse Gates instead as, as the next mm-hmm. one. Um, and once I did that, then I realized that structurally it actually made more sense um, to go to Deadhouse Gates first. Because uh, if I'm going to set the precedent of jumping continents and characters, I better do as early as possible. Um, mm-hmm. So Deadhouse Gates does that. And then in the memories of ice took the longest of all the books um in the series mm-hmm. to write primarily because uh we moved from england back to canada in the midst of it so that really sort of threw me for a bit of a loop and in terms of plot and story and number of characters it was the most unwieldy of all the books in my series for me um i probably stretched my abilities uh to the max for that book mm-hmm. and was right on the edge of just losing control of all of it so 
That's really interesting that you did that right before a book where you wrote in one perspective for the whole first book. (laughs) (laughs) Just when you think you got like, did you like doing that or did you not like? Single point of view? Oh, I loved it. I love it. (laughs) Um, Again, it's, it's, you have to really, you have to limit what that character knows and, and, and you have to stay inside their world. Not only that, that character and the two characters he ends up traveling with, none are verbose, none talk very much. And so the communication um, and dialogue is, is strictly, strictly limited. And I really like the discipline that that imposed on me in terms of writing. Um, it, was, it was great fun. Well, I hope we get a chance to speak about it. Um, oh, yeah. Because House of Chains is a, it's an interesting book. And I, I feel like the, the Carso opening is going to be a, well, we're, we're going to dive right in pretty soon. So cool. Very cool. Yeah. I look forward to your comments on that. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks. Thanks for uh, having this conversation with us. And we look forward to talking again. Yeah. It was good fun. We good to go yeah, then, AJ. I think we're all set. We just have to do our clap to sync up the files, and then and then we'll the be good set. Good old clap. The good we old. We all clap. have to clap. Uh, you, you. I mean, you can if you want. You can. <laughs> you, know, right. you don't need to. All right, all right, all right no, it's fine. All right, three, two, one. All right. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> As always.